Today we're going to get started with the 23rd Psalm. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup runs over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Oh, Heavenly Father, thank you for that promise, that sure promise that we have because of the work of Jesus Christ, that we can dwell in your presence and in your house forever. We thank you for that, and we love you, we praise you. We want to uh, ask your blessing upon this service today, and I'd also ask for the blessing of the uh, church, the service of the uh, church that's meeting over on the beach today. And uh, I would pray that somebody would walk by and maybe hear something that would... Uh, uh, bring them to know Jesus, or maybe the music that they're playing will uh, uh, somehow touch somebody in a, a special way. Lord, thank you for everything you've done for us here at Church on the Beach, and uh, this is our last uh, official service out here, and uh, I want to thank you for the past two and a half years that you've provided us a place to meet, and uh, uh, the challenges were few compared to uh, what they could have been, and it's just been a wonderful time, and I thank you for each person that's attended over these past two and a half years, and uh, I would pray that you'd search out each person that has attended, and uh, uh, if they're not attending church right now, or if they're uh, not right with you, that you would uh, be there and lead them back to you. Lord, we thank you for this, and we look forward in anticipation of uh, meeting in a, a new building and in a new way in the uh, weeks ahead. But we do thank you again for this wonderful spot you've given us, and uh, we want to give you praise and glory and honor for it, and uh, may this service be to your honor and uh, to the benefit of the people that are here, and I thank you. I thank you for all you've done for us in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, obviously, my prayer is let you know that uh, we'll be at uh, the Superior Avenue building next week. Uh, I will not announce that officially until uh, the inspections are done. And uh, then after that, I'll say it on Facebook and to the people I send the Bible devotional and all that out to. But uh, unless something really catastrophic comes about, we will not be meeting at Church on the Beach next week. Uh, so if anybody else shows up, please let me make sure they know that before uh, uh, we leave today. And um, I am sure that everybody here has heard this a million times, but if you want to be baptized uh, at a Church on the Beach service, this is your last chance. If not, then we'll have a service out here once in a while and uh, we'll make it available at that time. But um, it'll be our 91st Genesis sermon today. And it's called An Awareness in the Sons of Adam. And uh, it's uh, the last half of chapter 36 of Genesis. And um, really wonderful stuff. Despite the fact that it's almost all names, we can really discern a lot from these particular verses. So uh, I hope that it'll bless you and that uh, you'll see something that, uh, uh, or hear something that will just uh, help you understand the work of Christ a little bit better. And... Um, uh, let's see here. Uh, we have uh, just a couple people just walked up and I want him to know that my brother was here and he left even before we got started. He's really sick today. So I'd ask that you keep uh, uh, bones in prayer. And um, of course, we have other prayers. Some people I've talked to this week about things that uh, are in their own lives or that are affecting them. And uh, so I just ask that each person here would, uh, uh, you know, remember to pray for others. 
Uh, Darla, Darla is traveling this week, and so I'd ask that you uh, remember her in your thoughts and prayers so that she uh, uh, comes back to us safely. And uh, I, I can't think of any other immediate prayer needs, but uh, it's something that I, I would just ask of you daily is to remember the people that are, uh, uh, you know, just in need and that have troubles because your time will come if you don't have it now. Anyway, um, we'll go ahead and read the 24th Psalm and uh, then we'll get into our sermon. And we got a little bit of wind, so I'm going to button that down right now so it doesn't blow away. And uh, this is the 24th Psalm. It says here... It's a psalm of David. The earth is the Lord's in all its fullness, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the waters. Who may ascend into the hill of the Lord or who may stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to an idol nor sworn deceitfully, he shall receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. This is Jacob the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face, Selah. Lift up your heads, O you gates, and be lifted up, you everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your hates, heads, O you gates. Lift up, you everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts, he is the King of glory, Selah. Uh, if you've uh, ever looked at the back of my truck on the tailgate, it actually has that last portion on the tailgate this, of that psalm. It says, lift up your head, O you gates, kind of a little pun on that. But uh, you know, I'm a sticker guy. I got signs and stickers all over my life. But uh, anyway, um, uh, we'll go ahead and get into today's sermon. It's Genesis 36, 15 through 43, as I said. And this is called An Awareness in the Sons of Adam. But before we get into that, as I do each week, and uh, I, I love doing this, uh, I'm going to start out with uh, this day in history. And today, on this day in 1683, the first Mennonites arrived in America aboard the Concord. Now, um, I don't know, we got a couple new people here to Sarasota, and I don't know if they know who the Mennonites are. Have you all uh, experienced them? We got a whole group of them down in town Sarasota. Oh, good. Okay. Well, I was going to bring that up as a, a, one of my points about the Mennonites. They are extremely honest people. It's a Christian sect or denomination, and uh, they're very hardworking. And the Mennonites go from extremely, we'll, we'll just use left and right as an example, from far uh, right to far left as far as ideology. And just like most Christian denominations do, um, the, uh, the more conservative they are, they wear the, uh, you know, the single colored clothes and the guys wear suspenders and, uh, the women wear a bonnet and, uh, which is actually taking that particular verse of Corinthians out of context. Um, you know, it says that a woman should, uh, wear, a, have a covering on her head. I think that's one Corinthians 14. Anyway, that is taken out of, it may be one Corinthians, it is, I'm, I think it's one Corinthians 14. That is out of context. And I can explain that to you during a Bible study sometime, but they're doing it in honor of the Lord, and the intent is, is there. Um, I don't know if you know the, uh, the reason why Mennonites don't have a mustache. Is anybody here aware of that? Uh, it goes back to the war. And most Mennonites and Amish that you ask won't even know this, but the, uh, the officers and enlisted during especially the uh, Civil War and before that wore mustaches. That was just a sign of being a soldier. They did not want to be associated with that. So they shaved off their mustaches because they're pacifists. They do not believe in um, uh, fighting. Another doctrinal error, but something that I would not argue with them over. It's just that the Bible does not teach that precept. 
Um, and that's why they don't wear mustaches, the men don't. Um, there, there are certain things that they hold to which are, are not correct, and yet they love the Lord. And so, you know, these minor issues like that aren't something where you go pointing heretic and saying all that kind of stuff. Um, I have some really good friends that attend an, a Mennonite church, and uh, there's a pastor of a um, less conservative Mennonite church right down uh, just over the bridge. And I've come to know him, not real well, but he's a wonderful guy. And um, I've actually been to a couple Mennonite churches uh, for praise and worship at different times. And uh, I, I think it would bless you if you ever just diverted over there. But don't do it on a day when you're attending church on the beach or the superior word. Of course, I'm kidding. You, you're, you have freedom anytime to go and uh, visit these churches. But uh, I do disagree doctrinally with them on several issues. A couple main issues, uh, a lot of smaller issues. But uh, wonderful souls that love Christ. And once again, very hard workers, very honest if uh, uh, pay is short coming in from, the, say, the contractor, he will make sure you get paid before he eats. I, I, I am certain of that. So you've got a good employer there. I, I, I feel confident of that. Anyway, these uh, Mennonites uh, comprised mostly the German and Dutch families that settled in an area which is now Philadelphia. If you know the area of Germantown, there you go. That's these people. They came over at the same time as William Penn. And uh, that's where my grandmother's side and my, my grandfather, through a different branch, can trace right back to that same arrival as well. Even though we're not of German descent, uh, we uh, can go right back to that time. And um, uh, there you go. That's uh, one of the early groups of people coming to America, as we see with all of these early groups. They all wanted to come here to worship the Lord in spirit and in truth and freedom from the oppression that they had over in Europe. Uh, we'll go on to 1847 on this day. Jane Eyre uh, by Charlotte Bront was published. It was first published in London, England. And uh, after that, in 1848, one year later, the steamboat, the SS California, left New York Harbor for San Francisco via Cape Horn. The steamboat service arrived on February 28th, 1849. The trip took four months and 21 days. So imagine that how long it took to get from, from uh, where was it, New York over to uh, San Francisco by boat. And uh, now we can fly there in a couple of hours. And if you take, uh, what is it, the, um, uh, one of the military planes, you can probably be there in about two hours. But uh, anyway, that was 1848. Then in 1866, the Reno brothers, I don't know if you've ever heard of them, but they pulled the first train robbery in America near Seymour, Indiana. They got away with $10,000, which I'm sure back then was a whole heap of money. So uh, kind of fun stuff, even though it's, you know, obviously illegal and it's not the kind of thing you want to preach into somebody's life. It's kind of fun to read American history, Billy the Kid and, you know, things like that. But that was the Reno Brothers. Um, then in uh, 1880, the National League kicked the Cincinnati Red Reds out of the National League. Does anybody know why they did that? You're not going to believe it when I tell you this. They sold beer. Imagine that. What do we do when we go to uh, baseball games nowadays? Everybody, that's the first thing they do is they go buy a hot dog and beer. So uh, uh, th there was a different morality in America at the time, and it included no beer at baseball games. So uh, how different America of today is. Um, 1889, the kinescope was exhibited by Thomas Edison, and he had patented the moving picture machine in 1887. And uh, then something that i got to tell you, I'm going to talk about this, and some of you may get up and be angry, or you may think, what is he talking about? But I'm going to mention it anyway. 1890 polygamy was outlawed by the Mormon church. Now, I want you to know that uh, the Mormon church, they, they just wouldn't let Utah become a state 
uh, and they wanted to be a state and they wanted to participate in what was going on. And uh, so they actually outlawed this uh, in order to have that. They, they're still polygamists in uh, the Mormon church to this day. Um, they're, they're doing it without the authorization of the church or the government, but they do do it. And um, I, I, I am going to say this not because I care either way, but because I like people to know their Bible for what their Bible says. There's nothing in the Bible that would prohibit polygamy with only one exception. Does anybody know what that exception is? Elders and deacons in the church, New Testament. But throughout the Old Testament, it was actually authorized, even under the law. And there were provisions for second wives and all that kind of stuff. Uh, if you know Solomon, who I'll mention today in just a, a side context, uh, he had 700 wives and 300 concubines. Uh, you know, David had lots and lots of wives. It goes through all their names and the names of all their children. And this, like I say, it's very common in the Bible. And I'm not promoting this. I'm just, it's like alcohol. I, I'm not here to promote alcohol, but I want people to know what the Bible says about it. Because you don't ever hear the truth in 90% of the churches. Tithing. What does the Bible say about tithing? And I've brought that up in an entire sermon. And nobody that I know of, unless they have sat in one of my classes or that sermon, had any idea what the Bible really teaches about tithing. And you hear, get these things beat over your head in churches when this is God's word. I, I, I do not care if it offends somebody or if they don't like it. He wrote it, not me. Once again, ordaining of women. You know what? It's not my choice as to whether a woman can be a pastor or not. It's God's choice. And so people that go, you know, they, they quote, uh, what's that lady's name? Jo uh, Joyce Myers. They post her on Facebook. Man, you'll never get a like off of me from Joyce Myers. Not because I don't agree with what she said. It's because she is violating God's word. This is the way of the world. We have to hold God's authority in a higher standard than ours. So, little diversion there about the Mormon church and polygamy, I know, but uh, I just want people to be aware of what the Bible says and what it teaches and doesn't teach. Not that I'm condoning anything in our modern society, okay? Um, 1839 on this day. Oh, listen to this. This, this is America of today. Um, Adolf Hitler denied any intention to wage war against Britain and France in an address to the Reichstag. That was, what, 1939, and within a year or so, he had... He had gone in and taken over France, and, uh, and uh, later he attacked Britain. You know, it, words have to have something behind them, or they're just words. And we get our politicians daily saying things that are just untrue. It just falls out of their mouth. And uh, we've got, uh, you know, this, that we need to pass this law so we know what's in it, but we know that it won't raise your rates. And, of course, we find out that's true, not true. And every single thing that politicians say, I would take with a grain of salt. And in particular, the issue that I'm bringing up about this is that Iran has said, other than destroying Israel, we're not going to use, we're not building uh, our, uh, working on nuclear stuff for, for bombs. We're doing it for our infrastructure and for uh, energy use. When they have more energy than almost any country in the nation of the world. We don't want to believe their words. We want to believe their actions. And here's another thing. Our president, just in the past couple of weeks, went and says, we're going to meet and talk with the Iranians. Okay. Well, that sounds like a great thing, and everybody's applauding him, that he's the first president since uh, uh, Carter to actually deal with the Iranians, when in fact they have stated openly, not once, but numerous times, numerous times, that their goal and desire is to destroy the state of Israel. And we are going to deal with these people before they retract that. I got to tell you what, there is nothing more appalling to me than the policies that are being promoted from our government right now in the hatred 
of the Jewish state and in the contempt for the American people. And I'm proud to say that. I'm not hiding it. I will not hide it. And uh, I, politics are a part of our life, and they're something that we deal under. The Lord is the one that establishes nations, and he tears them down. And if we don't follow the Lord in our politics, then he will tear this nation down. And so I have a right, biblically, to speak political issues if they don't conform with the Bible. And here we go. Um, that uh, Hitler lying to the people, it's all over us today. Um, 1961, President Kennedy. And we've got a couple young people here that wouldn't remember this. And this is even when I was very young. It was... Uh, uh, happening about this time. It was before I was born, but this is the kind of mindset of this time. President Kennedy advised families to build and buy bomb shelters to protect them in the event of a nuclear exchange against the Soviet Union. Uh, very scary times in the world, but in fact, if you, if you thought about it for two seconds, they knew that if they attacked us, we would destroy them. It was called MAD, Mutually Assured Destruction. And so no, neither side was really going to do this. It came very close at the Cuban Missile Crisis. But even then, they knew that they couldn't do this thing. I would submit to you that the world is much, much more dangerous today than it was in the 60s. Because we have rogue nations with nuclear power. And we have nations that absolutely hate America that have sent many, many hundreds and thousands of people into this nation ready to uh, do us harm at a moment's notice, and I do believe that. So I would ask each person to just always be aware of your surroundings and uh, uh, to not be fearful. You know, we have a hope that, and you're gonna see that in today's sermon, we have a hope that the world does not have. And there is to be no true fear of death, even though death is something that we can fear on an individual level. All right, and like I say, we'll talk about that in a minute. Uh, finally, on this day in 1973, Egypt and Syria attacked Israel in an attempt to win back territory that had been lost uh, in the third Arab-Israeli War. Uh, Israel was established in 1948, and by 1973, they'd already lost three times, and now they're trying again. Um, maybe they're not waking up to what's going on. Does anybody know the name of that uh, war that happened in 1973? The Yom, Yom Kippur War. That's right. And uh, it was, we're going to attack these people on their holiest day of the year. They're going to be unprepared, and we're going to, we're going to, take back our land, which never was their land. It's God's land given to his people. Um, and of course, uh, it was very close there at the beginning. Israel was very concerned about the, uh, the state of what would happen, but eventually they did prevail. It took two weeks for them to uh, uh, beat off their enemies, and they beat them off in a great way once again. And uh, so this has just been going on since their establishment, and it's going to continue to go on until the return of Jesus Christ. So um, that's our, this day in history, and uh, just know that whether it's political issues or whether it's is, uh, issues with Israel or with your own family or with your own friends, God is in control. And as long as you've called on Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, you will be secure in that. All right, so don't let all these things fear you. I'm bringing them up, and today there were a lot of kind of things that we could look back on and say that's a little spooky. Don't worry about it. The Lord has it covered. All right, now I'm going to do something that I normally don't do today, is I'm going to skip reading the text. It's uh, Genesis 36, 15 through 43, and normally I read it, but it is almost entirely names. And because of that, I'm going to just read the verses, and I'm going to analyze them, because you're going to hear it. And then after that, I'm going to give you the poem, which is basically the text put to rhyme. And so, uh, unlike other times where I read the text so you can think about it, I have a feeling that most of you are not going to grasp what God is trying to picture in advance. And so why bother doing that to you? Um, 
but uh, uh, it is wonderful stuff. There are some things that I learned in studying these particular verses that just, they just made me feel so wonderful about God's word. So here we go. Um, this sermon is going to conclude chapter 36, and we're going to be looking at 29 verses, which are mostly names of people, and there are a few locations that are mentioned, but very little else is noted in these verses. But because it's been been, been given by God, it would be negligent of us to simply read these verses and then to give a sermon about building a bicycle, which is the kind of thing that you would expect. If somebody even preached on Genesis 36, they'd read these verses and then they'd go give a sermon about maybe uh, uh, George Washington or something. You know, I mean, I don't want to do that. This is more fitting to God and to him as our creator to at least go through these verses and see them with an eye that is open to some of the multitude of details that he has given us and the reason why they're there. As we're going to discover today, conscience is something that is given to us by God and it is immensely important in our relationship with him. We were created in innocence. If you've ever read the Genesis account, you know that. God created Adam, and he did not have any awareness of his surroundings, okay? He didn't bear the knowledge of good and evil. That came later in Genesis chapter 3. Now, although it was man who strayed from God, he knew that we would. So you have to ask yourself, why would God allow that? We have all of this death and all of this trouble in the world. We've got all of the anxiety that people feel, little babies die, puppies get run over by, dog, by uh, cars, all kinds of terrible things happen. Why would God allow us to stray from him, to eat of that fruit and to fall? What, what, what's behind that? The answer is that in order to have creatures who can truly praise him, they must have an awareness of who they are in relation to him. Adam was created in innocence. He says, I'm your creator. It meant nothing to him. Oh, okay. I, you, you don't have any concept of this relationship that's going on until you realize your fallen state before him. Otherwise, you're just a being like a dog or anything else. You're, you know your creator. The Bible says that the animals know their creator, but they don't know the relationship aspect of it. I got to tell you, there was a lot that was lost at the fall of man, but in the long run, there is much that will be gained because of the fall of man. It's all a part of God's plan, and a portion of it can be seen in today's lengthy list of names, believe it or not. Our text verse for today comes from the book of Romans chapter 2. Here's what it says. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do things in the law, these, although not having the law, meaning the Gentiles, are a law to themselves who show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness and between themselves, their thoughts accusing or else excusing them in the day when God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. Now it's true. We have a law which is written on our hearts, which bears witness through our conscience. It works either to accuse us or to excuse us before God. This conscience, and I will tell you this, the Bible makes this clear, it can become seared. And so we dull to the things of God, or it can be kept tender, and it can be kept willing to comply with God. However we use it, it will be a source of God's judgment upon us when our life is done. And it will be done by the one who is qualified to accomplish that task, and that's Jesus Christ. His word is what reveals him to us, and his word is what gives us guidance 
for our lives so that our conscience will be free from the stain of sin. And so, may God speak to us through his word today and may his glorious name ever be praised. I've got three individual thoughts for you today. The first is the chiefs of the sons of Esau. Verse 15, these were the chiefs of the sons of Esau. The sons of Eliphaz, the firstborn son of Esau were Timon, chief Omar, chief Zepho, chief Kanaz, chief Korah, chief Gatam, and chief Amalek. These were the chiefs of Eliphaz in the land of Edom. They were the sons of Adah. This listing here is known as the chiefs of Esau. Older translations, and I know uh, Paul sometimes uses the King James Version, it will use the term duke. The word here that's translated chiefs is equivalent to the princes or the leaders of Israel. The word, the difference between the people that are listed here, the chiefs, and a king is that a king has been crowned where these chiefs have not been crowned. The reason why the older uh, translations use the term duke is because it comes from the Latin word dux, which means leader. The word here is translated from the Hebrew word alufe, and it has the same meaning, and it also has the meaning of 1,000 in number. So the title chief here probably is something like the leader of a thousand or the leader of a large group. In Greek, we'd use the term kiliarch, all right? In the uh, Latin, we might use the term centurion, although a centurion is over a hundred rather than a thousand, but it's the same concept. What we see here are the prominent descendants of Esau. The people of their tribes would be called by their name. This first list here contains the uh, uh, sons who are descended from Esau's firstborn son, Eliphaz, by his wife, Adah. All right, verse 17. These were the sons of Reuel, Esau's chief, Chief Nahath, Chief Zerah, Chief Shammah, and Chief Mizah. These were the chiefs of Reuel in the land of Edom. These were the sons of Basemath, Esau's wife. Now remember, Basemath is the daughter of Ishmael. Okay, she's being listed now. This second list is given to show us the link of Esau's sons by Reuel to his wife, uh, Basemath. All right, verse 18. And these were the sons of Aholibamah, Esau's wife, Chief Jeush, Chief Jalam, and Chief Korah. These were the chiefs who descended from Aholibamah, Esau's wife, the daughter of Anah. These were the sons of Esau, who is Edom, and these were their chiefs. This third list here is given for the chiefs who came from Esau's wife, Aholibamah. Interestingly, and this is where things start to me to really make more sense when you're reading these type of genealogies, is that these names are recorded and they're preserved not through Esau and his descendants, but through the people of Israel. In other words, God felt that the list was so important that he had it kept by his chosen and especially loved people. If you're following my drift here, the Bible is a book which, among other things, details the redemption of man. This seemingly tedious and often overlooked list is a part of that process. If you're willing to allow it, God is willing to reach into your heart through such lists and to say, I care enough about these long dead people to record their names. And so I care about you. Your name is recorded and you are a part of my plan. So come to me and learn from me and be reconciled to me, you sons of Adam. Remember that Esau is picturing Adam. Now let's think about this just a little bit more. Israel maintained this record of the Edomites and they also kept records of their own genealogies. And some of these are recorded in the Bible, not all of them. The rest of them were recorded at the temple. That's where they, it was the storehouse or treasury of all of the recorded lines of the people on earth, 
okay? In A.D. 70, the Romans went in and they destroyed the temple where all of those genealogies were kept and they were destroyed, meaning that the only place where they can now be found is the pages of the Bible. And there is only one genealogy, one, of the Jewish people which is intact from Adam all the way until that time of the destruction of the temple. That's Jesus' genealogy. The Jewish people are still waiting on their Messiah when in fact there is only one person on earth who can substantially prove that he is that Messiah, and that is Jesus. He's the one that came from Adam, through Abraham, through the line of David, all the way down recorded, not in one, but two separate genealogies, proving who he is and what his right to the throne is. This shows us the marvelous wonder of God's wisdom. The most published book ever on the face of the earth bears witness to what God has planned and protected, which is the record of Jesus Christ. If we can simply look at the bigger picture and see that precept, then the historical play with all of these little stories which don't seem to make any sense and which don't seem to tie together actually make all the sense in the world. How interestingly to us should be this book. I mean, it's amazing to think about how God is preserving this. And yet, what do we do? We sleep in late and we watch TV instead of getting into this book or going to church and learning about it. And it's a real shame. I, it breaks my heart to even think about it. Our second thought today is the sons of Seir. Verse 20, these were the sons of Seir, the Horite, who inhabited the land. Suddenly, in this, cha in this chapter here is detailing the genealogies of Edom. But right in the middle of it, there's a seemingly unrelated genealogy of a guy named Seir, who's not a descendant of Edom or Esau. Seir comes from a root word which is not used, but there are derivatives of this root word which combine to give us a picture of this people, the people of Seir, and thus a picture of us. Now, I'm not quoting their work today, which sometimes I do. But I want you to know that the study behind the words that I'm going to give you here comes from a group known as Abarim. You can get them on the internet. And the reason why I'm noting their work here today is because in this sermon and in many other sermons, it's opened up pictures for me which otherwise would have been completely lost. And they may some, say something about something all the way up in the book of Obadiah, but it makes me understand what's going on back here. And so I can recommend them as a really great source. Abarim is their name, and what they do is they quote other sources, the Haw Theological Wordbook of the Old Testament, or, you know, the BDB, the, they call it the BDAG or something nowadays. But anyway, they got all these sources that they've gone to, and then they've compiled their own website. And I wanted to note them just simply because I use them so often, and I like people to know where things come from in case you ever want to do your own study. So here we go. This name Seir is related to the word Se'ar. Now, I don't want you to get confused. I'm going to give you a whole bunch of words right now. Don't try to remember the words. What I want you to do is understand what these words are pointing to, okay? Seir is related to Se'ar, which means hair. That's why I've told you in previous sermons that Seir means hairy, okay? It also is related to a word Sa'ara, which means a single hair, and also sa'ir, which means hairy. So you have all these words which are related, okay? Then there's the verb sa'ar, which means to be very afraid. And you say to yourself, well, what does that have to do with hair? Well, I've told you again and again that hair in the Bible denotes an awareness or a consciousness. When you're very afraid, what happens? Your hair stands up and you bristle with terror, all right? The noun sa'ir means a he-goat a bristly-haired animal. 
Well, what does that have to do with anything? The he-goat was a sacrificial animal for the sins of the people. It's an awareness of sin. So there, once again, the hair is being tied back to the awareness. All right? Then you also have the noun, which is seora, and that speaks of barley. Well, what does barley have to do with anything? Barley is called the bristly-haired plant because it looks like hair, if you've ever seen a picture of barley. Then there's another verb, which is sa'ar, meaning to sweep away, something you would do with a hairy broom. And then from this word comes sa'ar and se'ara, which mean storm, something which does two things. First, it causes you to bristle with fear, so your hair stands up, and secondly, it sweeps away everything in its path. All of these words are being tied together by God to show us how the Bible is constructed. And you can do this with many words from the Old Testament. If you go to root words and you understand how it flows out into the rest of the language, patterns come out that are simply amazing. But it's a lot of work. I'm not trying to tell you that this is an easy thing and that's why most people don't get into these type of things. But it's wonderful how it brings out pictures of what God is trying to tell us. This is a lot of words that I gave you, but in the end, the concept of hair and all of these related words ties back to the thought of awareness and conscience. This group of people, the Sons of Seir, is certainly being introduced into this particular genealogy of Esau, who pictures Adam, for three reasons. The first is to show who, the land, who this land belonged to prior to Esau when he took it over, and thus where the name came from. Secondly, it's used to show the merging of the Edomite people with these people. They intermarry, and to some extent, they, uh, they co-mingle, but eventually what happens is the Edomites dispossess the Horites, who are the sons of Seir, okay? And finally, this is detailed to show the state of man and his circumstances in a world where we have a consciousness about God. The man named Seir is said to be a Horite. The Horite was first introduced way back in chapter 14 of Genesis, at the time that the kings of the east came and attacked the kings of Canaan. If you remember that, there were four kings against five in this great battle, which is detailingly uh, noted. So you have to ask, why is that there? These people were noted at that time. Abraham, I'm sorry, the name Horite means a troglodyte. I don't know if you know what a troglodyte is. It's just simply a big word for a cave dweller. There in the land of awareness, these people lived in caves. Throughout the Bible, caves are places where people go to hide away or to secret something else away. Lot, for example, was afraid of living in that little town of Zoar, and so what did he do? He moved into a cave. He was hiding away from possible destruction or whatever could harm him. If you remember the story of Elijah, he went and he defeated the 400 prophets of Baal. He had this great victory, and a woman comes up to him, Jezebel, and she threatens him, and he gets scared, and he runs down uh, south. He ends up in Horeb, and he's hiding in a cave. And here God comes and speaks to him. If you remember the story about Joshua, he goes into the promised land and he's uh, defeating all these kings. And in one uh, uh, story, he, I think it was five kings that he was fighting against and they all got together. The, the armies were defeated and these five kings went and hid in a cave. They were there. They were bristling with terror. All right. So Abraham at the time wanted to bury his dead wife, for example. This is a different. Some people are hiding in caves, but we also take our dead and we secret them away from us. Okay, that's what he did. He bought this cave. Hiding away in caves then is seen again and again and again in the Bible where people either bristle with fear, hiding in caves, or they secret something away to get it out of their presence. 
As you can see, all of these related words suddenly tie together in the introduction of this guy, Seir, and his descendants. The hairy man dwelling in caves, which is picturing the conscious man hiding from God. All of these things are being seen in this one guy's introduction of just a couple of uh, verses. And so we continue with the list of the sons of Seir, verse 21. Lotan, Shobal, Zibion, Ana, Dishan, Ezer, and Dishan. These were the chiefs of the Horites, the sons of Seir, in the land of Edom. In Genesis 32, verse 3, we read this. Then Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau, his brother, in the land of Seir, the country of Edom. If you noticed, it said Esau was living in the land of Seir in that verse, but now it says that the sons of Seir are living in the land of Edom. There's a point and there's a purpose to this. Seir and Edom are being tied together so that when one is mentioned, both are mentioned, regardless of who's being talked about. The Edomites, as I've said, they represent the people of the world descended from Adam. They have a conscience and they live in fear. Hebrews then explains this to us. This is Hebrews chapter two. Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself, meaning Jesus, likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who has the power of death, that is the devil, and release those who through the fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. There you go, that's the picture that we're trying to get out of these names which don't seem to make any sense. Here we are, we're living in fear, we're hiding in caves. We're waiting for the coming of the one who will destroy him who has the power of death, our old adversary, the devil. God kept these records and these names, and I gotta tell you what, the Hebrews that quietly copied them for century after century must have wondered why. Only in the Messiah is the reason for their introduction truly understood. Stated in a different way, these verses and these names ultimately get, are ultimately given, if for no other reason than to establish a baseline concerning the state of the people of the world as reflected in the struggle of man before the coming of Messiah. God's eyes and his thoughts may have seemed to be directed only at the people of Israel, which that's what it seems like throughout the Old Testament, when in fact his eyes are squarely on all, all of Adam's descendants. If you sometimes feel like God doesn't care about you, all you need to do is come to a meticulous list of names like Genesis 36 to see that he really, really cares for you and he is willing to go to extraordinary steps to call you his own. Here we are, we're living in caves, we're dwelling in fear, and Jesus is the one that comes along and he breaks these bonds of death. And he says to me, there is no fear here. You put your trust in me and all of these pictures of the Old Testament are fulfilled in me and all of that fear is taken away. You no longer have to hide from him. You can step into God's revealed light. Verse 22, and the sons of Lotan were Hori and Hemam. Lotan's sister was Timnah. Now Lotan is the first son of Seir and his name means covering. I'm not gonna give you the meaning of all the names of the sons and grandsons of this guy Seir, but they are listed for us to see the work of Christ. In the case of Lotan, I wanna give you the meaning of his name. It means covering. Lotan is derived from a word lot, which is used exactly one time in the entire Bible. And guess what it's speaking about? It's speaking about the end of death on earth. This is from Isaiah chapter 25. And in this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all people a feast of choice pieces, 
of feast of wines on the lees, of fat things full of marrow, of well-refined wines on the lees. And he will destroy on this mountain, think of the Mount of Seir, the surface of the covering, the lot cast over all people and the veil that is spread over all nations. And what is that covering? Said in the next verse, he will swallow up death forever and the Lord God will wipe away all tears from all faces. Now you got to remember, Paul used exactly this verse in 1 Corinthians 15 when he said that death is swallowed up in victory, speaking of Jesus Christ. And then John used this same verse in the book of Revelation to say that all tears will be wiped away because of the work of Jesus Christ. And Isaiah finishes, he will take away from all the earth for the Lord has spoken. And so now you're seeing why each name in here is listed. There is a reason. I'm not going to give them all. It would take us three months to get through this. But everything is pointing to the redemptive work of Jesus Christ and our freedom from sin and into the glorious presence of God once again. If Seir is the conscious man who fears death, then Lotan is that covering. He is the pall of death which has been cast over all of the people which afflicts and torments every nation on earth. In Christ, that Paul is destroyed and death is swallowed up in victory. And I got to tell you what, that is great stuff to me. In addition to naming Lotan and his two sons, it then says Lotan's sister was Timnah. Once again, right in the middle of what is this long list of genealogies, which is almost entirely men, a female is introduced and she's just mentioned as a sister. There's a reason why these things happen. Seir certainly had lots and lots of daughter, daughters, but only she is mentioned. And her name means restraint. Because she becomes the concubine of Eliphaz, the son of Esau, it gave the descendants of Esau the chance to intermix with the people of Seir. And eventually they took them over and they expelled them from the land. I quoted you that in last week's sermon from Deuteronomy 2. All right. Eventually, the Horites disappear along with all of Seir's people. So... If I were an evolutionist, what I'd do is I'd use this verse right here in Timnah's introduction to show that through evolution, the sons of Adam beat out the Neanderthal race on earth. And people do this. They use the Bible in this manner to say, well, yeah, there were Neanderthals in the Bible and not from this verse, but that's what you could conclude. I got to tell you what, that is not what's happening here at all. There are two reasons for including this lady's name. The first is that she becomes the mother of Amalek, the great foe of Israel throughout the entire Old Testament. And we read all about her and that happening last week. But secondly, she is named because Timnah means restraint. And her name comes from a verb, which is manah. It means to hold back, same idea, to restrain something. It is used in Psalm 84, verse 11 in this way. For the Lord God is a sun and a shield. The Lord will give grace and glory no good thing will he withhold. That's her, the root of her name there, for those who walk uprightly. Despite being the mother of the wicked group of people known as the Amalekites, I'm sure that she is named here to show God's mercy in both withholding his wrath on Adam's seed and demonstrating grace in not withholding any good thing from those who seek out his face. Despite not being the covenant people, God allowed them to continue on throughout all of the centuries until Christ finally came and he opened a path for everybody. Now, isn't that a God of restraint, grace, and mercy? And at the same time, restraint is seen in the world today as we continuously reject what has already gone past. Remember, these verses about Esau are looking forward to Christ. Now Christ has come 
and we're still rejecting him in the world today and God still isn't destroying us. Even after sending Jesus Christ, he continuously and patiently waits and tugs at our hearts until the day that we wake up from our slumber and call on him. And all I can tell you is Charlie Garrett is very happy he waited 36 years without destroying me so that I would have the chance to call on him. Last night as they were installing the carpet at the, uh, the building, the last thing I did before those three guys walked out is I pulled them off to the side and I told them about Jesus. I said, I want you to know why I'm starting a church here and what, what it's important to you. And I would hope that one or all three of them made some type of commitment after that. I don't know. But uh, God is being merciful by withholding his wrath on them because they are children of wrath until they come to Jesus Christ. Yesterday, I was at mission work with my friend Thomas. I go every single Saturday, every Saturday. And a girl that we had never met before walked up to us with some pancakes in her hands and uh, she's going up back to her house and because uh, there's a place that gets free pancakes and uh, we just stopped and asked if she wanted to pray and she said yeah I, I'd like to and I asked her if she knew Jesus and she says well you know she kind of gave me one of those and I explained the gospel to her and she was broken down into tears she accepted the Lord and she went on her way with her pancakes so God has been merciful on this lady she was an older lady but there you go. This is how these things work. And this is all being pictured right in these verses that seem to make no sense at all. All of it. Verse 23. These were the sons of Shobal. Avan, Manahath, Ebal, Shepho, and Onam. These were the sons of Zibian, both Aya and Anna. This was the Anna who found the water in the wilderness as he pastured the donkeys of his father Zibian. Now, I want to tell you something. If you want to pursue a real rabbit's trail, this verse right here is a fun one to do it. Here it says these words. Anna is the one who found the water in the wilderness. Nobody knows what this verse means. Some tra translators will say he found mules. Some say he found a race of giants called the Emim. Some say hot springs. Some say warm springs. I don't know what the difference between hot springs and warm springs is. I mean, you put your finger in there, and I guess this is a hot spring. That's a warm one. But guess what? The New King James translators, which I use, say he just found water. So nobody's really sure what this this set of words means but one thing is for sure this guy found something there in the wilderness as he pastured his father's donkeys adam clark who i quote from time to time he's this great methodist theologian uh gave the most bizarre analysis i have ever heard in my life from a bible commentary it was so bizarre that i i thought i have to read it to you today it, it, it actually made me laugh when i read it here's what adam clark says about it from the above opinions and versions which the things I just told you about. It could be mules or it could be uh, giants or it could be whatever. Here was his analysis. From those uh, opinions and versions, the reader may choose which he likes best. Okay, so I like mules and so that's what I'm going to say. Or I like a... That's not the bizarre part. Here's the bizarre part. He says, or invent one for himself. So, Charlie Garrett, I thought about that and I thought, well, you know, I, he says I can invent what I want, so I think that he found a bag of super sour neon gummy worms there in the wilderness. I mean, for somebody that is a Bible scholar to say, just invent what you want, that's not even trying. You have to use something as a basis for reality. So there you go. That's my thought about Adam, Adam Clark's thoughts. And I love the guy. Don't get me wrong. I'm not trying to slam him too hard, but I don't know what he had in his breakfast that day when he wrote those words. Anyway, this is one of those little mysteries that's found in the Bible. Do not fret over things like that. It's honest that God has interspersed the Bible with certain words and phrases that we will never know until we're in glory what they mean. But that doesn't mean that there's an error in the Bible. It means there's an error in our knowledge of what God is trying to tell us, and that's why we search these things out.
All right, in the next six verses, 25 names of uh, people or places are mentioned. How do I know? Because I sat here and I counted how many there were. Okay, if you really want to know what all of these names mean, ask me and I will email them to you. Otherwise, what I'm going to do is I'm just going to quote these verses for you so that our stream of Genesis remains uninterrupted. Okay, here we go. Verse 25. These were the children of Anna, Dishan and Aholibamah, the daughter of Anna. These were the sons of Dishan, Hemdan, Eshban, Ithran, and Haran. These were the sons of Ezer, Bilhan, Za'avan, and Akan. These were the sons of Dishan, Uz, and Aran. These were the chiefs of the Horites, Chief Lotan, Chief Shobal, Chief Zibian, Chief Anad, Chief Dishan, Chief Ezer, Chief Dishan. These were the chiefs of the Horites according to their chiefs in the land of Seir. And so, thus ends the list of the people of Seir. Our third and final thought today, the kings of Adam. Verse 31. Now these were the kings who reigned in the land of Adam before any king reigned over the children of Israel. After the diversion into the people and places of Seir, before and during the time of the Edomites, the genealogy now returns to Edom and those who reigned over the king of the land. But I want you to listen again to something. It says that there are those, these are those who reigned before any king reigned over the children of Israel. The question is, how could Moses have written this? Because Genesis is, in fact, in the five books of Moses. If it speaks of kings reigning over Israel, which didn't happen till long, long after the time of Moses. In fact, it was almost 400 years later. How could that have been written by Moses? Because the reason why I'm telling you this is because people will try to question God's word and they'll try to confuse you and say this isn't God's inspired word. And we know that because of things like this. And they're all through the Bible. The answer is that Moses wrote in a future sense. The promise by God was made to Abraham that kings would issue from him. But Moses, in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 17, actually speaks of the establishment of the kingship. So I want to read you this verse, so that you, or these verses, it's a little long, so that you understand that I'm not just pulling this out of the theological wind or making smoke up. I want you to know that God's word can be defended. Here's what it says. When you come to the land which the Lord your God is giving you, and possess it and dwell in it, and say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me, you shall surely set a king over you whom the Lord your God chooses, one from among your brethren you shall set as king over you. But you may not set a foreigner over you who is not your brother. Now, I'm going to read a couple verses and I'm going to pick one king in particular and I'm going to point him out. But he shall not multiply horses for himself, nor cause the people to return to Egypt to multiply horses. Guess what? That's exactly what's recorded about Solomon. He multiplied horses and he sent people back to Egypt to get horses. For the Lord has said to you, you shall not turn, return that way again. Neither shall he multiply wives for himself. Well, guess what? That was Solomon. He had 700 wives. All right, then it goes on and it says, um, where was I? Uh, Nor shall he greatly multiply silver and gold for himself. That's the whole thing about Solomon, that silver was as common, common as stones and gold was everywhere in the land. So once again, this is speaking not just in a future sense about kings, this thing about Edom, but it's specifically speaking about what the king shouldn't do. And then it's to prove that it's highlighting exactly the sins of one of the kings, which is Solomon. He goes on. He says, also it shall be when he sits on the throne of his kingdom that he shall write for himself a copy of the book, the, a copy of this law in a book from the one before the priests, the Levites. 
There's no record of Solomon ever having done that. And it shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life. Not recorded has being done by Solomon. That he may learn to fear the Lord his God and be careful to observe all the words of this law and these statutes. Something that Solomon violated because he went out and he worshipped the God of Chemosh and the God of Molech and all of his wives that turned his heart away from the Lord. So once again, Solomon is being highlighted by Moses. And that tells us that what we're reading was written by Moses. It's not something that is an error in the Bible. It goes on and it says that his heart may not be lifted up above his brethren, that he may not turn aside from the commandment to the right hand or to the left, and that he may prolong his days in the kingdom. All things violated or not done by Solomon, he and his children in the midst of Israel. Why Solomon? Because when he violated it, he was told that the kingdom is going to be torn away from your son, which actually happened. Uh, uh, Rehoboam ascended the throne. Jeroboam up in the north was given 10 pieces of uh, the prophet's uh, robe and he gave two to the, the uh, descendants of uh, Solomon. So you have two tribes here and you've got 10 tribes up here. That's the divided Israel. All because of the disobedience of a king who should have known better. He's only the third king in Israel and he's the second of the Davidic dynasty. And the spoiled little brat grew up to disobey God in every precept. But I want you to know there's no problem here with the word of God saying that it uh, was uh, after or before there were kings in Israel. That's the point that I'm trying to make for you. There is no error in God's word, but people do attempt to find fault in the Bible over things like this, and you need to be ready for it because it's either going to harm you because you think, oh, now I know there's an error in God's word, or it's going to harm them because now they think that they're vindicated because you can't give an answer. This is why it's so important to evaluate God's word as God's word and not give sermons. And I'm not opposed to people that give sermons on life application. But when Paul speaks to his protege, Timothy, and to Titus, he says to do an analysis of God's word, to preach and teach the word of God, not to preach and teach a life sermon about how to get through your marriage. The word of God will tell you that if you know the word of God. So I'm adamant about this. I will either stand or fall on the word of God alone. And my Bible studies, as Paul knows and Elaine here knows, are much funner than my sermons because we have a banter back and forth and we actually uh, give life applications and we talk about things. But the sermons to me are the most important part of my life. Monday morning is the most important part of my entire life and it goes all the way through Monday afternoon and then sometimes into Tuesday and Tuesday afternoon because I'm evaluating God's word to present to people. And then Sunday is the next most important part of my life is this time with you right now because I desperately want people to know God in his fullness. And most people don't have the time to sit down and to study these things. And you've got to get it from somewhere or you're going to be a ship on an ocean. That's my little uh, uh, plug for how the Bible should be preached today. All right, I'm almost in tears over that. Verse 32, Bela the son of Beor reigned in Edom and the name of his city was Dinhaba. And when Bela died, Jobab the son of Zerah of Basra reigned in his place. When Jobab died, Hushan of the land of the Temanites reigned in his place. And when Hushan died, Hadad the son of Bedad, who attacked Midian in the field of Moab, reigned in his place. And the name of his city was Avith. When Hadad died, Samla of Masrakah reigned in his place. And when Samla died, Saul of Rehoboth by the river reigned in his place. When Saul died, Baal Hanan the son of Akbor reigned in his place. And when Baal Hanan the son of Akbor died, Hadar reigned in his place, and the name of his city was Pau. His wife's name was Mehetabel, the daughter of Matred, the daughter of Mezahab. I can tell you what, I didn't do it for you because we'd go on all day with this, but this girl Mehetabel, she's mentioned after a whole list of men. That name has importance. And if we were to study it, you'd say, my gosh, I never thought of that. 
This is the kind of thing that you look for, clues in the Bible. When God mentions somebody offhandedly in a list of men that's a female, there's a reason for it. And one more thing about this list of names, none of them have to be names of the descendants of Esau. Instead, they could be kings who reigned in the land of Edom before it became the land of Edom. We can't be certain of who these people are or when they actually reigned. After this comes the last list in the chapter, which is three more verses for us to read. Verse 40, and these were the names of the chiefs of Esau, according to their families and their places, by their names, Chief Timnah, Chief Alva, Chief Jetheth, Chief Aholibamah, Chief Elah, Chief Pinnan, Chief Kanaz, Chief Tinman, Chief Mibzar, Chief Magdil, and Chief Aram. These were the chiefs of Adam, according to their dwelling places in the land of their possession, Esau was the father of the Edomites. This last list of three verses is believed to be the chiefs of Esau who reigned after the convergence of the people of Seir in Adam. In other words, the joint influence of both groups is now highlighted, thus showing the transition from the people of Seir to the people of Adam, who will eventually completely replace them. So here we have 43 verses of chapter 36 and all of this detail. Name after name after name after name has been given, and they've been interspersed with just a little bit of historical or geographical information. One lesson that we can take home from all of this is that although the line of promise from Adam through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is highlighted in the Bible, God has still watched over these people, all of these people in the process. None of them are lost to him. For every son of Adam pictured by the descendants of Edom, they're named and they're remembered. And that's telling us that every son of Adam that's lived in China for the past 3,000 years, and there are billions of them, God knew every smiling face, he knew every heartache, he knew every single thing about every one of them. The guy that got in his boat to go fishing and got swept out to sea and was taken to some island and died lonely 25 years later is not forgotten to God. This is why these type of details are given to us. Not one of them is lost. Every son of Adam is preserved. And that's why we're given such minute detail on just one particular group of people. The people of Seir have been added to the list to show how Seir and Edom united and became one people. But they've also been given to show us that in Adam, there is an awareness or a conscience which permeates all men. It is a conscious knowledge of God. The Horites were cave dwellers who hid from God's presence. And that's just the same as Adam and Eve who hid from the Lord when he came back to them in the garden after they had disobeyed. If you remember that story, Adam, where are you? Well, we, I was hiding, you know? I was afraid because we were naked. The awareness of their sin and their fallen nature caused them to draw back from the one that just a short time earlier they'd seen face to face and they'd fellowshiped with. In the loss of the friendship and the intimacy came something new though. Actually, two things came. The first was death. And that's a scary thing. And that's why Lotan was mentioned. His name meaning lot or covering, the pall of death. Death came in two forms. The first form was spiritual. But that was something that was promised by God would happen if they ate of the fruit and it was immediate. Okay, remember that? If you eat of this fruit on the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Well, he lived 930 years. So either God was lying or he was speaking of a certain type of death. And we've covered that in many sermons. It was a spiritual death. The second form of death was physical. And this type of death 
is much less severe than the first type of death. But we often fear it much more, don't we? People fear dying. Well, why is that? If spiritual death is far worse, then why do we fear physical death? The reason is that the first type of death, if that isn't corrected before the second type of death comes, then it will last for all of eternity. The horrifying inevitability of physical death was announced to Adam in Genesis chapter 3. It said, Cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat of the herb of the field. In the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you shall return. Death. Both types of death come through man's rebellion, and since that time, man has been secreted away in the caves of the earth. He's been secreted away in two ways. First, he's hiding from God, and he's also being hidden in death. The second thing which came about in the Garden of Eden was an awareness. It was a consciousness that man didn't previously have. Here's how Genesis describes it. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us to know good and evil. Just as Adam moved into a new realm and into a new dispensation, which is the dispensation of conscience, Esau moved into a new area and into a new home, that of Seir. After the move, yes, there was this ongoing struggle between the sons of Israel and the sons of Esau, or Edom, and that struggle went on right up until just before the time of Jesus Christ. In the year 129 BC, Edom was assimilated into the people of Israel and they became one people. Not long after this, guess what? Jesus Christ came and he walked among us. He, the true Israel, made it possible for all of the hairy sons of Adam to be united into the covenant people. There is no distinction groups now in Christ Jesus. All are one in the Messiah. But there are still distinctions in peoples. In everything, there are always two categories. As one wise man once said, I had to laugh when I heard him say this, there are only two groups of people. There are those who put everything into two categories, and there's everybody else. Now, that may be cute, but he's right. Concerning us, there are those who are in Adam, and there are those who are in Jesus Christ. There are those who are a part of the commonwealth of Israel, and they are entitled to eternal blessings, and there are those who are outside of that commonwealth, and they remain spiritually dead. There are those whose father is the devil, and there are those who, because of Jesus, have God as their father. And these are the only two categories that the Bible reveals. The little book of 1 John, way back towards the end of the Bible, tells us that this is true. This is from the third chapter and the eighth verse. He who sins is of the devil. Well, the Bible says all have sinned and all have fallen short of the glory of God. He who sins is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. Such is the nature of the work of Jesus Christ. It is an all or a nothing deal. So the question is, who is your father? Who is your daddy, we like to say nowadays? Who is your Abba? I would hope that each person here, and I'm sure of it, but I'm not going to take it for granted. You know, I know I've talked to everybody here who said they've made a profession in Christ. But just in case you haven't, or just in case somebody is on uh, uh, YouTube watching this for the first time, and they don't quite understand their need for Jesus Christ, how can I be in the devil, or how can I be in God the Father? I want to take a moment, and I want to explain that to you, and I want to explain to you how you can rectify the situation. 
The Bible says that all have sinned and all have fallen short of the glory of God. All right? And the Bible also goes on to say that the wages of sin is death. That's why we die. Adam sinned and he died immediately spiritually. And then as I showed you a little bit later, he died physically later because of his sin. So the wages of sin is death. That's what we get. That's what we deserve because of our sin in the presence of a holy God. The Bible goes on. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. It's something that we can't earn. We can't pay God back. We can't do great stuff to have God like us, which is the most common lie in the world, that people are gonna make God happy by doing something. Every time you talk to somebody, and one of the guys I talked to last night had that attitude. Why should you go to heaven? Well, I do good stuff and I'm not a bad guy. Sorry, Bible's already taken care of that one. You have sinned and you are separated from God. And so what does he ask you to do? He asks you to put your trust and your faith in what Jesus Christ did because Jesus was born without sin and he lived without sin and he gave his life up as a substitution for your sin. So now you can have his righteousness and he will take your sin away. And to prove that this is true, something wonderful happened after his cross. He lay in the grave for a couple days and out he popped on the third day. Why? Because the wages of sin is death. If he came out of the grave, then he obviously had no sin of his own. The sin of you is taken away in Christ, and the sin that didn't exist in Christ proved that he was the God-man, that he prevailed over death. Yes, death is swallowed up in victory because of the work of Jesus Christ. And if you've never done the simple thing, the only thing that God wants from you is to just say, I can't save myself, and I want Jesus to do it for me. I want to hand him my sin. I call on Jesus as Lord. I believe that God raised him from the dead because he was without sin. The Bible says you will be saved. So please do that today if you've never done it. That is my hope. That is my desire. That is my longing. Even for people that I can't stand, I'd rather see them come to Jesus and be saved than to not come to Jesus. And so I even pray for the politicians in Washington, believe it or not. Can't stand their policies, but I would love to see them come to Jesus Christ to change their heart and to turn this country around and have a new direction. I hope you would do the same. Pray for your leaders, pray for those around you. Witness to people about the glory and the majesty of Jesus Christ. And remember this, next week we are not going to be here at the beach. We're gonna be at uh, Superior Word, 6512 Superior Avenue. If you don't know where it is, please let me know. I don't know if Kelly knows where it is. She lives right next door, she better know. Anyway, I, I would ask that you would just be there next week and uh, uh, help me uh, to make that a place of fellowship and love and uh, grow into a church where we can really honor God and honor him through his word. That would be my hope and my desire. Before we uh, have our poem today, I wanna to remind you, I do this each week, is to tell you that the Lord has you. You're right here right now, he has you exactly where he wants you. And he has a good plan and a purpose for you. So call on him and let him do marvelous things for you and through you. Okay, our poem today is called Esau in Seir. It's subtitled, A Lot of Names for One Poem. These were the chiefs of the sons of Esau, the sons of Eliphaz, Esau's firstborn son, were Chief Timon, Chief Omar, Chief Zepho, Chief Kanaz, Chief Korah, Chief Gatam, and Chief Amalek. He was the last one. These were the chiefs of Eliphaz in the land of Adam. They were the sons of Adah, and she was their mom. These were the sons of Reuel, Esau's son, Chief Nahath, Chief Zerah, and more to tell, Chief Shama, Chief Mizah, these were the chiefs of Reuel. In the land of Adam where they lived their life, these were the sons of Basemoth, Esau's wife. And these were the sons of Aholibamah, Esau's wife, Chief Jeush, Chief Jalan, and Chief Korah. 
These were the chiefs who from Oholi Bama descended, Esau's wife, the daughter of Anna, zippity doo These were the sons of Esau, who is Edom, and these were their chiefs, and the name of each mom. These were the sons of Seir the Horite, who inhabited the land, Lotan, Shobal, Zibion, Anna, yes, that's right, Dishan, Ezer, and Dishan, making quite a clan. These were the chiefs of the Horites, not folks in Vietnam. They were the sons of uh, Seir in the land of Edom. And the sons of Lotan were Hori and Hemam. Lotan's sister was Timna. Would you remember in an exam? These were the sons of Shobal. We have five names, Alvan, Manahath, Ebal, Shepho, and Onam. To remember them all, make up some word games. These were the sons of Zibion. I hope you remember well, both Aya and Ana, their names as the Bible does tell. This was the Ana who found the water in the wilderness as he roamed around. As he pastured the donkeys of Zibion, his father, they, the find brought him a name widely renowned. These were the children of Ana, the names they were given. Dishan and Aholi Bama, the daughter of Ana, recorded in the land of the living. These were the sons of Dishan. Here we have four. Hemdan, Eshban, Ithran, and Haran, names we shouldn't ignore. These were the sons of Ezer, Bilhan, Zavan, and Akan, just three. These were the sons of Dishan, Uz, and Aran. That's only two, as you can see. These were the chiefs of the Horites, Chief Lotan, Chief Shobal, Chief Zibian, Chief Anna, too. Chief Dishan, Chief Ezer, and Chief Dishan, all with the rights to be called Horite chiefs, a pretty big to-do. These were the chiefs of the Horites all listed here, according to the chiefs in the land of Seir. Now, these were the kings who reigned in the land of Edom before any. King reigned over the children of Israel, and yes, yes, there were many. Bela, the son of Beor, and Edom reigned, and the name of his city was Dinhaba, a nice space. And when Bela died, the Bible explained, Jobab, the son of Zerah of Basra, reigned in his place. When Jobab died, the account we can retrace, Husham of the land of the Temanites reigned in his place. And when Husham died, Hadad, the son of Bedad, who attacked Midian and Moab's field, reigned in his place, making proud his dad. And the name of his city was Avith, as is revealed. When Hadad died, as we all do, Samla of Masraka reigned in his place. And when Samla died, making his friends go boo-hoo, Saul of Ria, both by the river reigned, Samla he did replace. When Saul died, Baal Hanan, the son of Akbor, reigned in his place. And when Baal Hanan, the son of Akbor, died, Hadar, then Baal Hanan, did replace. And the name of his city was Pau. His wife's name was Mehetabel, the daughter of Matred, who you know now was the daughter of Mezahab, as you can tell. And these were the names of chiefs, the chiefs of Esau, according to their families and their places. By their names, we're almost done. Hurrah! Chief Timna, Chief Alva, Chief Jethan. So many faces. And Chief Aholi Bama, Chief Allah, Chief Pinan, Chief Kanaz, Chief Timan, Chief Mibzar. Chief Magdiel and Chief Aram, now the list is gone, almost long enough to reach to Myanmar. These were the chiefs of Adam we see according to their dwelling places. In the land of their possession by divine decree, Esau was the father of the Edomites and all these name faces. <laughs> the account has been long but necessary too. God has detailed these things in his word for me and for you. All leading us to understand the work of Jesus better. So let's treasure every name, every word, every letter. Thank you, Lord, for such tender care of us. Thank you for sending your son, our Lord, Jesus. Hallelujah. Amen. Lord, thank you for this chapter. Thank you so much for these names, which 
seem so bizarre as we read them. I read them 50 times before I did this sermon, and I had no idea the glory and majesty hidden in here. And I thank you for the opportunity to make your word into poetry, and I hope it makes you smile when you hear these words. And uh, Lord, I want to thank you once again. Thank you for each person that has come out to Church on the Beach over the past two and a half or three years, especially those that have continued to come out to Church on the Beach despite every possible trial that we have faced. It has been a long trek, but a fun trek. I thank you for that. I thank you that we have a new hope and a new uh, opportunity next week coming ahead of us, and uh, we look forward to it. I pray that uh, it will turn out to be a place where you are glorified in the fullest, in the maximum sense of the word, that you will be glorified, that worship will be true, that your word will be handled properly, and that people will come to know who you are because of the people that attend there who then have a boldness to go out and tell of the glory of Jesus Christ. I pray this, and I pray that each person here today will just have a great week ahead, that every single one of them will be blessed in their heart, blessed in their soul, blessed in their marriage, blessed in their friendships, blessed at their table, blessed as they breathe the air that you've given us. Every good thing that comes from you, bless them with, according to your grace and according to your mercy. We certainly don't deserve it, but we ask for it anyway, and we do so in the name, the glorious and exalted name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.